Ken Wilber is a contemporary American philosopher who has written a whole host of books related to what he calls integral theory. Wilbur has a particular gift for synthesizing information across diverse fields of study and then designing these really helpful charts and graphs for how various systems interact and how they can perhaps mutually inform one another. I find his frameworks helpful in many ways for reflecting on the promise and the potential of this complex, uh, multi-layered system that we call Unitarian Universalism here in the 21st century. Similar to the ways that Wilbur seeks to integrate various fields of study, we use have not one source or even two or three sources. We have six broad sources. And underneath this big tent of Unitarian Universalism, we have the freedom to explore across traditional boundaries and to challenge one another to account for perspectives that we might neglect if left to our own devices. So mystics and social justice advocates, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Taoists, humanists and scientists, pagans and representatives of indigenous spiritualities, and many more are all welcome to join together here as we attempt to build a beloved community. Consider, for example, that rainbow mobile that's hanging from the ceiling of our atrium, that room that most of you who didn't slip in through the kitchen entered as you uh, came into the sanctuary this morning. Symbols of the world's religious traditions um, hang alongside symbols of humanism, atheism, and science. As you use, we seek to explore what does it mean to be a religious movement here in the early 21st century that takes seriously the paradigm-shifting discoveries of Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, Einstein, Hubble, and so many others. As a line from one of our hymns says, we seek to be a freedom that reveres the past but trusts the dawning future more. So in that spirit, what might a religion of the future look like? Beyond having hoverboards, right? And, you know, we're all still waiting for our hoverboards. I've been reflecting on this question the past few weeks as I've made my way through Ken Wilber's latest book, The Religion of Tomorrow, A Vision for the Future of the Great Traditions. Unless you're feeling particularly ambitious, I would not recommend starting with this latest volume from Wilbur. It's a bit of a doorstop of a book. He could use an editor, to be uh, honest. But if you're interested in learning more, uh, he's brilliant, but he could use an editor, as, as we all could. If you're interested in learning more, I'll put three much more accessible starting points in Wilbur's um, bibliography uh, and I'll, on the manuscript version of this sermon that we'll put on the sermons page of our website. But for now, I'll give you just a few highlights. Wilbur has four touchstones of what a religion of tomorrow might or perhaps should look like. For him, it looks like waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. This morning, I'll focus particularly on those first two of waking up and growing up. I've preached before about what he calls cleaning up. That's Wilbur's term for shadow work, practices like therapy that help us address our unconscious and repressed aspects of ourselves. And for Wilbur, that fourth one of showing up refers to the flourishing that can become possible when we focus on all of those aspects of ourselves, when we really try to wake up to our lives, 
when we really try to grow up into the possibilities of the 21st century and we really try to clean up our pathologies. Uh, many of you have heard me say before, you know, that our family can push our buttons because our family sewed on our buttons. That's the stuff we've got to clean up. But let's start with waking up. Many of you heard me say previously that Buddha is not anyone's name, right? No one named their kid Buddha. Someone's probably named their kid Buddha by now, but... Uh, historically, it's a title meaning awakened one. It was given to a historical figure named Siddhartha Gautama. And, you know, similarly, like, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? It means anointed one. Um, anyway, Mahatma means, you know, is the title meaning great soul that was given to Mohandas Gandhi. So it's a similar dynamic. So uh, that title, Awakened One, um, is similar to the Buddhist um, awakening or enlightenment. Those are all the same word. Uh, so that experience of awakening or enlightenment, and that's what Wilbur's trying to get to with his term, waking up. It refers to practices that help us progress through different states of consciousness. The easiest state of consciousness to access for most of us is the waking state. That's the one presumably most of you are still in right now. Uh, you know, some combination of the five senses, hearing, sight, smell, taste, touch, is helping us perceive this physical world in which we find ourselves. Hopefully no more than a few of us are in the more subtle dream state of consciousness, uh, and through spiritual practices like meditation, one can access other states of consciousness. To the extent that language can adequately describe such states, some traditional descriptions, in, descriptions include pure, empty awareness, or unqualified pure awareness, or unity consciousness. In an effort to describe the shifts in consciousness that can happen through practices like meditation, Robert Keegan of the Harvard Graduate School of Education says, I know of no better way to summarize development than that the subject of one stage becomes the object of the next stage. The subject of one stage becomes the object of the next stage. Let me say more about what that means. <laughs> If you have experimented some with meditation, I suspect you've experienced, even if you didn't know what it was called, uh, what is sometimes called the witness. Not like witness in a trial, but similar to that. Part of what one is doing during the early stages of learning to meditate is cultivating a capacity to witness the various sensations that are constantly arising and passing away that we have come to think of as our self. Now, we could have a little sidebar here on Buddhist impermanence and no self and all of that, but that's part of what that's about, is coming to witness this arising and passing away of these various sensations. And a common part of the human condition condition is to grasp, to get caught up in a cycle of unreflected stimulus response related to various ones of these sensations. So someone says something or someone does something and then I react immediately. Stimulus response with anger, with sadness, with joy, with fear, with shame. You all know the basic emotions, right? Mad, sad, glad, bad, right? So in contrast, meditation can help you cultivate the ability to more reflectively notice what's going on. As one of my meditation teachers says, we're just trying to notice what we're noticing while we're noticing it, right? And that can sound simple, but most of us don't do that. Most of the time we don't notice what we're noticing. We don't notice, we just kind of stimulus response all over the place. 
someone still does and says something, but increasingly through spiritual practices and other secular practices as well, we can develop a capacity to notice what is happening, to witness the situation and ourselves in it with curiosity, sometimes even with some sense of equanimity. So instead of reacting immediately, we can become aware of things like, I'm noticing anger arising within me. I'm feeling a sensation of my chest tightening, maybe my fist tightening, whatever, right? Or maybe even a more sophisticated sense of, I'm actually starting to also sense that there's some sadness underneath that anger about this connection, uh, this lack of connection and understanding that I'm feeling between us. Such a more reflective response has the potential to radically shift our way as of being and becoming in this world. There's a lot more to say about cultivating a witness stance, but for now, let me push us one step farther. Regarding how one can move beyond the witness to the full potential of awakening, which Wilbur calls waking up, there's a famous saying by the late um, Katagiri Katagiri Roshi, the founding abbot of the Minnesota Zen Center. He used to say that the witness is the last stand of the ego. The witness is the last stand of the ego. The witness still has the dynamic of subject-object. Can you remember back to that Robert Keegan thing about the subject of one becomes the object of the next phase? So he says, you know, that when the, the ego still has, the witness still has the subject-object. You're still perceiving, you're still noticing these things. Awakening experiences have to do with transcending that duality into what is sometimes called a non-dual state of being. So depending on your spiritual path of choice, waking up is about practices that help shift you through states of consciousness, what Christian traditions sometimes call illumination, union, Christ consciousness, or gnosis, secret knowledge. So, you know, gnosis has a G-N that's similar. So we have a, we have K-N, we have K-N, we have K-knowledge because the Greeks had gnosis, which is also related to what Buddhists call a jhana state. So they have J-N. These things all start to relate together as you start to set them up and compare them in these nifty little charts that people like Wilbur set up for us. So it's also related to what the Buddhist traditions call nibbana, satori, kinsho, these various words for enlightenment or awakening, what the Jains call kavala jhana, absolute knowledge, what the Hindu traditions call moksha, ultimate freedom, what Islamic Sufis call ma'arafat, ultimate knowledge, or fana fi Allah, annihilation, what Jewish Kabbalists call ein sof, oneness, what some secularized spiritualities call big mind, big heart. Despite the differences, and they're real, between those traditions, all of those terms refer to waking up into advanced states of consciousness. To widen our focus a bit further, the second of Wilbur's four touchstones is growing up. Whereas we've been talking about waking up into different states of consciousness, growing up is about progressing through stages of development, so stages instead of states. A related dictum about the importance of different stages of development is that often we don't see the world simply as it is. We see the world at least partially as we are. In other words, as we grow up, both individuals and societies have the potential to pass through 
we don't always do this. Some people just hit adolescence and ride it on through till the end. But we have the potential to pass through various stages of development. Uh, to oversimplify for the sake of time, here's a brief overview. As infants, we're in a fairly undifferentiated state of basic sensory motor drives. That's fancy psychology speak for spending a great deal of time eating, sleeping, peeing, and pooping. Approximately age one to four, we can advance beyond just being driven by these basic sensory motor drives. We move into what is sometimes called an impulsive fantasy stage. So impulsive, not a lot of control and a lot of, uh, not a lot of separation between fantasy and reality. So on the individual level, this might manifest as a child hiding their head under a pillow and literally thinking you can't see them because they can't see you, right? Some of you may have seen this dynamic in play. On a societal level, the equivalent might be a lot of hunter-gatherer societies, sort of the equivalent there. During the elementary age of childhood comes what is sometimes called the magic mythic stage. Individually, that is what's happening individually, um, societally corresponding to the agricultural revolution. One trait of the stage is believing myths literally, that Moses really did part the Red Sea, that Elijah really did go straight up to heaven, and that heaven is up right there on the other side of the sky, um, you know, so uh, that Lao Tzu really was 900 years old when he was born, and so on. Now, in adolescence, we become increasingly capable of rational thought corresponding to the Enlightenment and to modernity in Western civilization. Middle age corresponds to post-modernity, an increased openness to paradox and that there are more things on heaven and earth than are contained in your philosophy. Wilbur, Wilbur's integral theory and other sort of systems like it are one among many systems trying to count for the interplay between these stages. So instead of just being locked into your stage, saying, let's try to take more of a meta view. Now, I went through those stages of development very quickly, and the point is not to memorize the details. The larger point is that instead of merely getting older each year, we have the opportunity to increasingly experience the world in a fuller, wiser, more integrated way. Even more importantly, here's where one of the real twists of integral theory comes in, that we can begin to explore how to weave together growing up and waking up. Remember that dictum that I quoted earlier from developmental theory that we don't see the world simply as it is, we at least partially see the world as we are. Along those lines, Wilbur invites us to consider that human beings and the various different religious traditions have been having authentic experiences. People have been really waking up for thousands of years. Um, that non-dual experience of awakening in many ways remains the same then and now. The same potentiality to wake up and realize sort of the radical emptiness at the core of experience, and that there's, but there's still this arising and passing away and flow. In Wilbur's words, a sage who 2,000 years ago directly realized emptiness would discover and possess the same identical freedom as a sage who experiences radical emptiness today, even though the world has evolved considerably. In the meantime, it's grown up a lot. Waking up is the same, but that's about states. Waking, dreaming, and then these advanced states of consciousness. It's not about the stages of growing up. 
So what difference does it make that we now have access to new stages, modernity, postmodernity, integral, and more, that were not available even a few hundred years ago, much less a few thousand years ago? For Wilbur, what's new is the potential to become more and more conscious, increasingly complex, more caring, more loving, more creative, more self-organized, creating emergent higher and higher wholes more than has been possible previously in history. Now, that's all still pretty abstract, so I'll give you some concrete examples. One of the aha moments that I had when I first started studying integral theory and developmental theory generally was that it helped me understand how is it that someone seemingly has authentic awakening experiences, you know, a real experience of having woken up, yet they're sexist or homophobic are abusive. I saw a story just this past week of an extremely advanced Tibetan Buddhist teacher who for years has been incredibly abusive to his students, even while helping them have incredible awakening experiences. What's up with that? The reason is that one can be awake, one can be, spir- one can be awake spiritually without being grown up developmentally, as was the case with all spiritual awakens- awakenings prior to the scientific revolution. Uh, Conversely, one can be grown up developmentally, one can be a citizen of the modern globalized world without having ever had a spiritual experience of awakening. Similarly, a failure to do shadow work, what Wilbur calls cleaning up, can cause pathologies at any stage, at any state. An integral perspective showing up challenges us to evolve along all the lines and all of the levels, waking up, growing up, cleaning up. Now, all that is easier said than done, so let me give you another concrete example of how this relates potentially to real life. Uh, there's a, Wilbur does this in 800 pages, so if you want more examples, I can, uh, I can point you in that direction. So imagine that a person in an almost exclusively Christian setting has a powerful dream of a, luminously, of a, a radiantly luminous being of light and love. In that exclusively Christian setting, a natural, uh, in, in, a natural way to go would be to interpret that dream as about Jesus. If that person is in an egocentric first-person stage of development, he might interpret the dream as meaning that he himself and only himself is actually a reincarnation of Jesus. And shouldn't we all just pay attention to that, right? And there are multiple examples in history of people having experiences that led them to think they were Jesus or Buddha or Krishna or etc. From a more um, ethnocentric, tribalistic, uh, second-person stage of development, that same dream might be interpreted as affirming that their group really is the exclusive chosen group. So they've moved from narcissism of I, they've moved to a you, but it's still a limited you. Next, from a more rational, globocentric, third-person stage, that very same dream might be interpreted not literally, but metaphorically, as a reminder that Jesus is one among many wisdom teachers and might have something in particular that this person might benefit at this season of their development. Finally, from an integral perspective, we can begin to understand how we can have that same phenomenon, that same dream of radiant love and light, and yet have three completely different interpretations and experiences of the exact same phenomenon, depending on the subject's stage and the subject's worldview. 
So I've been, I've been introducing in that last section some play with languages, right? First person and second person and third person, moving from the I to the in, interpreting everything narcissistically to the you of being able to see yourself in other per, people's shoes to that third person it, which is what science brings in, right? Trying to observe stuff and increasingly objective to the uh, extent as possible. And that's related to that stages of development, that subject, how the subject of one stage becomes the object of another. So it starts with that witness stance and then eventually transcends beyond the witness as the ego becomes the non-dual. So you move from I and then eventually the I becomes the you because you can see the I from the place of seeing someone and seeing yourself in someone else's shoes, right? That's that subject becomes the object, the I becomes the you, and then we get the um, it, so we begin to see that either one of us in a more objective way, and then finally a we, or we could go beyond this, but getting a plural, so getting a, just a feeling of myself outside that I really am connected, um, what, the, what you use call the interdependent web of all existence. So to tie this together just a little bit more, the following is a quote from Wilbur about how all these dynamics can play out over time. He says that during the Renaissance, as the sciences and medicine and law and art and education and politics began their moves increasingly into the modern rational, then the postmodern pluralistic, then the unifying integral, religion all too frequently remained frozen at the mythic literal, ethnocentric, racist, sexist, patriarchal, homophobic, authoritarian, absolutist, dogmatic, unquestionable. Now, given the state of the world, I actually think Wilbur's being a little optimistic about politics and some of the others, but we're focusing this morning on religion. So he continues, the Western world, in effect, ceased its spiritual growth. Spiritual intelligence of stages, the ways we spiritually grow up, remained frozen at mythic literal, or that, he says, of today's typical seven-year-old. And higher spiritual states, the ways that we can wake up, were banned in general. This, in essence, is the anemic state of Western spirituality, Western spirituality today, a double catastrophe, low stages and no states. Religion that is pre-scientific revolution, pre-Copernicus, pre-Darwin, and that discourages firsthand religious experience, right? Don't trust your firsthand religious experience. Just believe what we tell you, right? This is that tension we've talked about before of the difference between saying, looking at the Bible and saying, well, it says right here in the Bible women should be silent in church versus saying, well, my experience tells me women are phenomenal preachers. So what do you go with, right? Your experience or what tradition says. This dynamic of religious institutions failing to help people wake up, grow up, or clean up, or show up, you know, so, you know, religious institutions saying, you know, don't trust medicine, don't trust therapy, right, that, that's failures in cleaning up. That's part of what has contributed to burgeoning numbers of people identifying as spiritual, but not religious, Many people want authentic, first-hand spiritual experiences of how do I wake up, while also being able to be a grown-up who doesn't have to check their brain at the door and stop believing in science the moment they enter a religious institution. My hope is that, religi- that Unitarian Universalism is an example of a 21st century religious movement in which one can be both spiritual and religious. That we seek to be an institution invested in supporting individuals and groups seeking to wake up, to grow up, to clean up, and to show up more fully in this world. 
So much is possible within Unitarian Universalism and other religious movements that give us the freedom to explore the possibilities of encouraging spiritual growth, of building diverse, beloved community, and of acting for peace and justice in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world in which we find ourselves without having to repress or deny the truth of ourselves or the truth of science, the truth of our experience that we see around us. Now, none of us knows with certainty what a religion of tomorrow might actually look like, but I am grateful to be with you on the journey of trying to find out. So Wilbur's a little bit of heavy lifting, so let me give you one more recapitulation that might might help. This is from James Fowler. He wrote a book called Stages of Faith. He was, I believe he died a few years ago, actually. He was a professor of psychology and theology at uh, Emory University in Georgia. So he talked about, and I'll sort of overlay a little bit of, of Wilbur onto this. So he talked about the stages of faith that we can go through um, throughout our lives. And the first is, not surprisingly, pretty egocentric. It's that first-person, narcissistic, I, 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 I of mythic literal. And I, I'm actually skip, I'm skipping straight to stage three for the purposes of time. So it's uh, what he calls mythic literal. And so in that stage, you take things as about yourself and very literally. And then the opportunity becomes, as we grow a little older, um, traditionally entering into adolescence, you can go to stage four, um, which stage, sorry, mythic literals two. Three is uh, synthetic conventional. So conventional is like the, what's the kind of conventions of your time? And synthetic means to synthesize. So this moves from first to second person. So here you're strongly concerned with the you. So this is a typical adolescent. You can think about adolescents really worrying what their peer group thinks about them. The James Fowler's cute little phrase for this is, when I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. I'll say that one more time. When I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. And I so often see and can think of this in my own adolescence. I see adolescents struggling with this all the time. They aren't worried about who they really are. And they often get it wrong about what other people really think about them. They're constructing the me that I think you see, right? That's synthetic conventional. And the way that relates to religion is you're sort of synthesizing the conventions around you. Very ethnocentric, very tribalistic, uh, very second person. So to go to the third person, to the it, so the I, the you, to the it, is um, what Fowler calls individuative reflective, developing that capacity, that witness to sort of reflect, right, to individuate, to figure out who is my I. I'm going to separate out from this tribe and figure out who am I really. We often start to see this happening in late adolescence, in college, as people sort of start to separate from home. So you go from the I to the you to the it, that scientific, objective, who am I really. And that, that's how that plays out. The next stage is conjunctive, often not reached till middle age where one becomes this ability to, because that individual reflective can often be a rejection than in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So that middle age conjunctive, it's what T.S. Eliot called going home again for the first time and, and seeing it anew. So the, um, it, so the conjunctive stage is what uh, M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled, he said it's characterized by that holy conjunction and, both and instead of either or, where one starts to be able to embrace paradox and reclaim some of those childhood things. But you don't ever really go home again in the same way, but at least being able to go home again, whereas you might have in adolescence just you know torn out of there. And then the the final stage is universalizing, and that and so in both with both um, 
conjunctive, and then with, you, with conjunctive, you get to that we. That's where you shift from the singular to the plural. Uh, and then finally with universalizing is where you get that taste of the non-dual, that, that taste of things, really really the borderless. The, so you start to get those things like late um, MLK and late Dorothy Day and these sort of radical visions of what might be. So that's a glimpse, just some tools, some frameworks. Maybe there's just a few things you got this morning that you can put in your tool belt for ways to uh, think about the world. Regardless, as you go from this place, may you continue your journey in love. Whatever state, whatever stage, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another, care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.